Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Brandon Taubman joined the Houston Astros as an analyst in 2013, moving up the front office chain for the past five years. In his current role as Senior Director of Baseball Operations, he focuses on player analytics, roster construction, contract valuation, industry economics, arbitration, player development, and international operations. I had a chance to sit down with Taubman to discuss his pre-baseball career, what made him leave the business world for baseball, the ups and downs of the Astros' rebuild, and what it was like to see that process result in the organization's first World Series championship. Enjoy this conversation with Astros' Senior Director of Baseball Operations, Brandon Taubman. Brandon, how are you? Doing great. Appreciate you doing this with me. Absolutely. So, growing up in New York, I believe you were a Mets fan? I was a Mets fan, diehard. Was baseball always your favorite sport? Baseball was definitely always my favorite sport. Yep, played it since uh, since I was a kid, and uh, I remember my dad used to take me into Shea all the time before they redid the stadium. So, um, grew up a big sports fan, and obviously a dream come true that I get to work in the industry now. What was your peak level as a player? Peak level as a player is pretty pathetic. I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed to say, but um, I was a uh, bat last right field kind of guy in Little League, but it didn't prevent me from uh, you know loving the sport anyway. That's good to hear. You got a degree in applied economics from Cornell. Is it safe to say that you didn't anticipate a career in baseball when you graduated? That's uh, that's fair to say. I was kind of narrow-minded with my approach coming out of school, thinking it was about you know getting the best job possible in finance, and um, that was the track that I was on since you know first year of college. So um, it wasn't until five six years into my career that I really started contemplating doing something different. Before you got into baseball. You created a projection model for daily fantasy baseball. Did you ever think that industry would become as big as it got? I, I did, actually, and that was actually the, uh, you know, the impetus for getting into it to begin with. Um, I liked playing poker and realized, obviously, that that market had become saturated very quickly, right? But the people that got to online poker first and were more skilled than the rest of the competition obviously did very well. So my friend and I had a, you know, a thesis or an idea that, daily fantasy sports was very much the same. It was this, you know, game that was dependent on some skill, some ability to beat the person you're playing, and it was fully monetized. So we wanted to be good at it really quickly, and um, we were looking at it exactly like that. But that was actually the the pathway into baseball because I started to get involved in, you know, baseball research and found that very intriguing. So I kind of thank that for actually giving me the catalyst to, you know, pursue a career in baseball. 
how does one go about creating such a projection model? I mean, I, I, I love baseball. I don't know that I would necessarily be able to do that. Yeah. Well, fortunately, there are a lot of very smart people in both working for teams, but also in, you know, the public space that make that easy for you and make it easy for, you know, someone to go scrape projections and find an application for the projections, find park factors and put that into a formula as well, find umpire effect and weather effect and put that into a model as well. And actually, one of my current colleagues, Mike Fast, who um, heads up our R&D department, he was famous first as an analyst in the public space. And I've borrowed from a lot of his work when I was building my daily fantasy sports projection system. So it's kind of fortuitous that now we work together on a, on a daily basis. After you graduated, you worked for Ernst & Young advisory team, which consulted with the federal government during the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. You moved to Barclays Investment Bank, working in their equity derivatives group as an analyst. For those of us with little to no business background, can you explain exactly what all that means? Um, I'll do my best. Um, so what I will say in layman's terms is that there are a lot of financial products that are traded by financial institutions that are complicated to understand. Um, with stocks, you can go observe the price in the stock market pretty easily. Um, the bond market is very liquid, but when you get into these more complex products, it's hard to say what they're worth. So um, my job was actually to try to make sense of these most complex products in a market where actually no one understood them at all. So um, I have to admit that my time in finance was weird because I was dealing with the very products that took down the market, and my job was to try to help value them. And then not only that, I'm doing it one year out of school. Um, so for me, all of that was an experience about how important it is to have good model validation, good processes, good data and all that. So um, learned a lot in that time about what to do well and also how to avoid you know, bad mistakes and issues. Probably not a coincidence you're starting to sound like a baseball executive now. <laughs> <laughs> were there executives in the game that you admired from afar growing up or, or you know, as you were considering getting into the game? Well, uh, for me, obviously, Billy Bean and the Moneyball revolution was something that had opened my eyes to how someone like me could maybe have a place in baseball. But that was, um, you know, something that really hadn't resonated. I wasn't at the point yet where um, I knew I wanted a career in baseball, but I at least was reading about how math and data was being applied in baseball and found that very intriguing. But it really wasn't until I read about Jeff that I was thinking that I wanted to make a career of this. I was um, obviously reading a lot on these third-party research sites about things that could help my daily fantasy sports projections business and started to read a lot about Jeff actually and everything that we, he wanted to do for the Astros having come from St. Louis. And um, it was inspiring and kind of coincidental that I then saw a position that he had posted for um, and the rest worked out pretty quick. That leads to the next question. Your first job in baseball came in 2013 when the Astros hired you as an analyst. How did that all come about? Um, so I was at that point, you know, six years into finance um, and doing fine on my daily fantasy sports side business and saw a post when I was having a couple beers with my wife at a bowling alley on President's Day 2013. I remember the day well. I actually think it helped that she was a couple drinks deep when I asked <laughs> if I could apply for a job as a baseball analyst in Houston. But um, she gave me her uh, her blessing, and I remember going home that night and submitting my resume, then got a re response a month later. I thought I had no chance. You know, my resume was so bad that they didn't even consider it. But uh, it got back to me about a month later and said that I'd been selected for an interview, uh, rather a um, essay round. 
And so they issued a whole bunch of, um, of essay questions that were not light in topic. They were, um, you know, math dependent, some of them, and some philosophical. Um, I took quite a bit of time of that. Then again, didn't hear back from them for about a month. And again, thought I was out of it until I got a, an, an email then from David Stearns, who's now the GM with Milwaukee Brewers. And uh, he invited me into Houston to meet him in person, Jeff, and a bunch of the guys that I still work with. So rest is history. I don't know how I got the job because I saw some of the resumes of other folks with, you know, multiple PhDs and longstanding playing history. And somehow, uh, you know, things worked out in a really amazing way for me. So. It always comes back to the wife giving you the approval to do it. It does, of course. <laughs> Mike Gersh told me the same thing. It's very and funny. I, uh, I got a good one, so I owe a lot of this to her. You said that Jeff's business background as a management consultant helped inspire you to pursue a career in baseball and specifically to want to work with him at the Astros. Aside from simply being your boss, how much has he meant to you in your career? Um, well, he's meant a huge amount. I mean, he gave me my first big break, but it's more than that. I mean, ever since I've gotten here, he's taking a liking to me for some reason I don't fully understand but he's I feel like he's had my my back every step of the way and really had my development in mind so um, I've been promoted three times there are a million people around me who are as smart or smarter that aren't getting as much of the credit I am so um, I trust Jeff that he's leading me forward in a great way and it's been a real pleasure to work for him. You mentioned the three promotions since you've been here is your ultimate goal to be a big league GM? I don't think so, no. My goal is to be with Jeff for as long as possible because I know if I'm working for him, you know, we're going to be in a, in a good spot. I believe in his vision. I believe in his sense for the challenges that a general manager faces. And I actually worry about whether I would be able to do as good of a job as him. In fact, I know I wouldn't, um, which is all the more reason to kind of, you know, it's not so bad to be, you know, second or third fiddle and, work for a general manager that's doing an incredible job. So my main goal is for that to last for as long as possible. As exciting as it was to get the job and go join the Astros, what was it like for a kid growing up in New York to move to Houston, Texas? You know, it was, it was tough. It's kind of, uh, it's, it's weird how it works because when you're, you know, in my experience, when I first applied, I was like, man, this would be, this would be fantastic if I got this job. And then the month goes by and you think you don't have the job. You're like, you know, this is this is for the better because I'm going to be close to family and friends and that's what's most important. And then you get the second round and you're like, oh, yes, I'm back <laughs> in it. Like, let's, let's do this. And, you know, so it, it's funny. It's like continued like that throughout time. I think that's the grass is always greener effect where you can't have everything you want in life. And I feel like lucky that I have most of the things that I want in life. So. Yeah, it's tough to uh, to leave New York and still is, but I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it. I'm happy where I'm at. Your your family is all Mets fans as well. My family is all Mets fans. So yeah. they were very happy to see you beat the Yankees last year. Oh, they loved it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they had dual purpose out at Yankee Stadium in the LCS. But um, for it was interesting. Like my dad is a diehard Mets fan, but for the first year or two, he would still talk to me on the phone about baseball and say we we we, speaking about the Mets, not really recognizing that I was you know quickly not caring very much about the Mets right. and caring solely about the Astros. You had a but new, new we. I had a new we. Um, but, you know, over the course of time, it's like hard not to root for your son and the team that he's loving. So I'd say that they would qualify themselves as Astros fans first now. Would, would they feel the same way if you had to work for the Yankees at any point? I, you know, I've, I've, I've wondered about that. I, I wonder if their hatred for the Yankees is too deep-rooted <laughs> that they just wouldn't be able to get over it. So. I was talking to Mike Gersh, and he's, you know, he grew up in Chicago, and 
brothers are Cubs fans. He was a Cubs fan. Now he works with the you know, GM of the Cardinals. He said, well, when they when they play each other, they'll root for they'll root for us, kind of. He said, but when and I thought I had converted them to Cardinals fans until the Cubs won the World Series, and I could see how excited my brother was. I was like, yeah, he's still a Cubs fan, you know. So there's only so much uh, bloodlines yeah. can, can trump lifelong fandom, right? <laughs> According to your bio, your current role has you focusing on player analytics, roster construction, contract valuation, industry economics, arbitration, player development, and international operations. Do you ever sleep? Um, I get more sleep than some of the guys around here. We're, <laughs> we're a hard-working group, but um, it's, it's kind of hard to to qualify what I do because I kind of poke my nose in all over the place and Jeff's giving me some some license to do that. So um, I'm involved in all these areas, but I work with a lot of good people that actually lead those functional areas. So um, that statement would probably give me some undue credit, I think. Might even have to revise that down a little bit. <laughs> talk, to, talk to Gene, see what he can Talk to Gene that. after the, the podcast. What, uh, is it tough to keep up with everything? I mean, obviously, like we just said, we just rattled off a laundry list of, of things. So do you have to pick and choose in your role sort of where your attention most needs to be that day or that week? Yeah, and it's actually a new challenge for me because I'm used to doing work, like being in the weeds and um, having special project assignments from the general manager where like the scope is real focused and I know what I'm doing and why, but now it's different. I'm helping to run the day-to-day and helping to guide and oversee, but not necessarily do and direct. Um, and so I imagine this is like a common challenge for people that get more responsibility, more people underneath them, but I'm, I'm struggling with that because I'm a little bit of a control freak and sometimes I want to do things my way, but I uh, constantly tell myself that I have a lot of really great people working for me. Got Matt Hogan, who's leading us in the pro scouting space, along with uh, Kevin Goldstein and, and Will Sharp and three of those guys make an incredible, you know, three-person pro scouting effort. I feel like we're doing a tremendous job there. Um, and my analytics, you know, my involvement in analytics, like I could lean on this guy, Mike Fast, who I think is not only the best, you know, analytics person in baseball, but probably all of sports. So I have the, the great benefit of working with people who make me look really good. Your first year with the Astros, the team had 51 wins. How tough is it to go through that kind of year, even when internally you know you have a long-term plan in place? So the first year, I didn't feel at all dejected because it was my first year in the game. And um, Jeff had been there already for a year and a half, and so had Sig and Mike Elias. And so they were already like worn down and beat up and tired of fans yelling at them. Um, but for me, it didn't matter because I was at a ballpark watching the game within a stone's throw of a general manager. So... Um, you know, personally, it wasn't hard. I think it was obviously hard on our, our fans, who at that point had been many years removed from um, having a good on-field product. And it was tough for our business people who can't do their job well because their job is a function of what baseball operations does. So I think there was some, some hurt all around. But for me, I was like gushing the first year. <laughs> and I'd say by the second year, um, that's when I started to feel like the real desire to get better quicker even quicker than this, you know, five-year plan that Jeff had, had laid out and really want to accelerate some things. So um, I think that's when the competitive spirit kicked in, but it was nice from that point forward because it was pretty much a, an upward shoot from there. I would assume at this point an 82-win season now would be more disappointing than the 51-win season was then. Oh, yeah. I don't want to think about 82-win seasons <laughs> for 
many, many years. Um, so expectations are obviously as high as they could be right now. How's your background in finance helped you with this job? I think it's helped me in a couple ways. Um, first of all, um, many of the disciplines in finance, like being a responsible investor, being able to establish threshold and knowing you know, what deal you want to do and the deal that you want to walk away from, um, being able to take inputs and put them into a pricing model that helps you understand what an asset's worth. Like all those things are relevant in baseball and more and more so. So certainly on the, you know, like transactional level, the questions of how to put together a good team, like there's all this stuff from finance that I, that's applicable. Um, but also I think it's given me a feel for how to interact with some of the folks on the business side, with some of Jim's ownership group, because these are all people that are kind of cut from the same cloth. So I think every good organization needs a combination of good baseball people and good business people. And Jeff's put together that mix here. For someone as analytically driven as you are, do you believe there is such a thing as intangibles when it comes to players? Absolutely. Yep. And it, it all comes full circle because some of these intangibles become more tangible and more measurable over the course of time. But I like to look at it this way, that there's a lot that analytics can offer in terms of measuring things and determining the predictive ability of those things. Um, and then there are a bunch of things that analytics can't measure. And maybe over the course of time, analytics can help measure more and more of those things and put in the model. But we always need to appreciate that we don't know everything and we never will. And we need people with a lot of experience and feel for the game and domain expertise to help support decisions, however data-driven they are. So. Um, despite early rumor, we were never really an organization that depended on, you know, automated output on systems. We were an organization that relied heavily on that, that definitely had a data-driven approach, but did realize the value of, um, outside opinion, perspective, wisdom of the crowd, all that sort of things. I think I, I read somewhere you talked about Springer and Bregman and the fact that they were able to sort of keep their their composure and their cool and, and sort of have that impact on the clubhouse when you guys were down 3-2 to the Yankees, that's one of those yeah. things you can't measure the way a guy handles a situation necessarily. Exactly. But, yeah. but without that, you maybe don't get to the World Series last year. Right. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to measure those things, but I know they're real. They have, they, they have to be. And in, in other kind of organizational settings, these things have been studied and we know they... You know, we know they matter. So we might not know how many extra wins AJ gives us, but I think it's it's many wins a year. And you can borrow from other disciplines and areas of research that says, like, managerial behavior is important on a team's output. Like, why would that also not be true in baseball? So I definitely think um, when it comes to those intangibles, like, what is the influence of a manager on setting the clubhouse culture? What is the influence of having a guy like Springer and, and Bregman who – pick up their teammates when they're down and keep the mood right in the clubhouse like that stuff is is huge and if we say in the analytics space that like a win is worth nine and a half million then you know who knows what those intangibles are worth the john singleton extension was such a polarizing one to say the least why do you think that struck such a chord with so many people because it was different i think that's why because the traditional extension model is to only consider extending players when they're in or approaching their arbitration years. And when a player is making league minimum, um, you don't really need to think about what's going to happen three, four, five years down the road. Um, and this was a different way of thinking about it. It was the idea that it's okay to take on a little bit more risk by way of extending a player earlier on 
if there's also additional upside. And, you know, so it's a different sort of risk reward profile. But if you have that sort of approach with your group of players and you can get a handful of players under extension, um, then in net, the idea is that the payoff is even better than doing one traditional sort of extension. So um, we've tried to find a balance with our players where they've wanted, you know, security for them and their families and where we wanted to increase, you know, the window to have a player here. And we've had a, a couple matches and continue to work on that. So with that information being readily available to all 30 teams, does it then come down to, like you said, the way the teams process that information and, and use it to their advantage? I think so. I mean, with StatCast, certainly, just by way it's set up, the league um, technically owns those units across the 30 stadiums, and they, um, you know, they administrate program where they dole out that data to everybody so everyone has it right and it's not a competitive advantage to have data in other sorts of um, markets or whatever you could argue that you could get data that other clubs can't and that that's a competitive advantage but not at the major league level and so it just becomes a matter of what you do with it and I think there's like two buckets that you could put your energies into one is um, how does this past data of how a player runs or fields or hits or whatever predict future performance and that's very much like the traditional what well, i say traditional but only in the past 10 years or so right. since the money ball revolution but back in the 50s back right? in the 50s right <laughs> trying to predict the future over observations from the past few years like that's been done for the past few years but now there's a different aspect also which is how do you use all this data to help your coaches, give them better tools, give players better insights to why they're struggling or performing well and all that. So that's, I think, the bucket that's most exciting for us. Fans seem to pay the most attention to exit velocity, launch angle. Which aspects of StackCast do you find the most interesting and or useful? Those are good ones. Those are they're good ones. But I find the pitch quality stuff really interesting um, because TrackMan is providing... Um, tons of information. TrackMan is part of the StatCast system. They're providing tons of information on every pitch thrown. So um, I like to geek out on that stuff most of any, but there are other folks I work with that are interested in other areas of the game and get as much benefit from looking at that. Other sports have tried to follow baseball's lead in terms of analytics, yet it seems like none of them have had quite as much success. Why do you think baseball lends itself to it better? Baseball lends itself better because it is essentially a series of independent events and therefore very measurable events. You have a pitcher throwing the ball on a batter who swings or, or doesn't and when he does makes contact or doesn't. And that is a very easy um, scheme for understanding data, right? But on, in basketball and soccer, you have a bunch of players running amok on the field in some continuous play. And so it becomes much more difficult, I think, to break that down that data and understand. Um, so I think that's why baseball is ahead in that space. But there are other industries that are probably ahead of baseball um, in sports medicine and performance and other areas like that. So baseball is only, only ahead in some areas, I would say, which gives people like me hope that there's more to be done. You've been in the game for five years now. In what ways has the analysis of players changed the most during that time? Um, it's a really good question. So I would say it's changed most in that, um, these technologies are now introducing tens of thousands, if not millions of rows of data on a single swing. Whereas all the, you know, predictive analytics we were doing on players a few years ago was about 
taking a season or two seasons worth of performance data, two rows of data, and trying to predict the future with it. But now there's so much more out there that can affect the way that we project what a player not only will likely be in the future, but all the outcomes around that. Now that all 30 teams have analytics departments, is there a constant push internally to stay ahead of the pack? Yeah. Oh, that doesn't that doesn't go away. And Jeff's been reminding us constantly of this offseason. He has this quote that he learned from his father-in-law that says, the enemy of success is success. Very poetic. I like it. Um, but what he's pretty much saying is don't slack and feel a sense of urgency all the time. And it's not just that we have a target on our back and teams want to beat up on us. It's that baseball is designed to put really good teams at a disadvantage and really bad teams at an advantage moving forward. And that's a good thing, right? And that's how it should work. It's, it's parody. But um, we're a really, really good team right now, and we're enjoying it a ton. But we worry about four or five years down the road and you know, having to suffer the lack of you know, first overall picks and a lot of money in international and all that. So we need to find ways to make up the gap there. And Jeff is reminding us that the time is now. What area do you think might provide the next competitive advantage for clubs? I mean, you had the analytics teams 15 years ago, and they were few and far between, and those teams had some sort of an advantage. Now everybody has analytics department. What do you think is the next the next area that teams are trying to try to, and obviously I'm not asking for your internal secrets, but just generally speaking uh, in the game, where, where where is the next competitive advantage coming from? I think one of them, I don't want to, give away secret sauce, obviously, but one of the things I'm realizing more and more is that having excellent coaches that understand the game of baseball, understand how the body works, right? So it's not just some nerd like me wearing khakis up in a front office looking at data and all that, but um, understands baseball, understands how the body works, and then has a willingness to partner up with front office people um, to take information and apply it in the best way. That is a competitive advantage so what I'm pretty much saying is like staffing decisions. Um, I'm finding more and more might be, you know, this potentially um, unrealized opportunity for clubs. I mean, obviously everyone has always put emphasis on having good staff, good people. But now I think the requirements for being really, really good are changing. And you need to have the best of both worlds and um, give Pete and Armando, the guys that head up our minor league area, a ton of credit for going out and finding the best minor league coaches in baseball. And we have that on both the hitting and pitching side, and that's been a multi-year effort, but our entire PD staff is incredible, and it provides a feeder system, feeder system up to the major league level where you know, we just added two guys in Doug White and Jeff Albert to the major league staff who have years of sustained success at the minor league level, and they have their opportunity now. So it's, it's that we're helping all our players that are maturing up, and we're also creating a pipeline of really good coaches that you know, are – able to help us at the major league level at some point as well. It seems like more clubs are investing time and resources into sports science, performance, um, you know, performance departments, etc. How much more do you think teams can do in that end to try to try to help their players? And just as importantly, is it, uh, is it necessary for the players to buy into this stuff to make it work? Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely in working in opposite order. That's a uh, I think a hot topic right now between the commissioner's office and um, the PA. It's like how do how ought players look at all these wearable sports medicine and performance technologies? I think what both sides have trouble agreeing on the way I see it is our interests are 
really aligned on all this stuff. And the better a player performs and the healthier he is, the more money he's going to make. And also the more wins the team is going to get and the more money the team is going to get. So I see, um, I see a strong alignment there, but it's a tough area because, you know, at the same time, it's sensitive medical information that the club has access to. So I think for the first time we're, we're navigating through that and that's a big impediment right now to, for that area to mature a whole lot. But I do think that there's value there for sure. And we don't know how much because we're kind of on the forefront of all of it, but Bill Ferkus and Jose Fernandez lead that area for us and, um, I'm really excited about some of the stuff they're doing. Last season was obviously a memorable one for you and the Astros. At what point during the five-year rebuilding process did you feel like everything was really falling into place? I think I felt that way first in 2015. That was the year where it almost felt like we jumped ahead a whole season. We were you know, a year ahead of what Jeff had kind of laid out as the way forward. So that was the point where I was like, okay, this is, this is working and the team is coming together. Now, obviously, 2016 was a down year for us, but it was a blessing in disguise, I think, because we all felt fired up heading into 2017. Jim had increased our payroll and a desire to bring in some guys, and um, Ozo Campo, Mike Elias, on our amateur side, did such a good job building up our minor league pipeline that now we had a pretty damn good team and one of the best farm systems in baseball and a growing payroll that Jim was supporting. So we definitely felt like going to 2017 that this was the year, which I know is a cliche, but in 16 and 15, we didn't say like, this is the year, let's do it. I mean, we had an attitude that we wanted to either get to the playoffs or go deep in the playoffs. But I remember the speeches that Jeff and AJ gave in spring training this time a year ago, and it was about, you know, doing it, just getting it done. And we had the stars aligned, so I'm happy it worked out the way it did. I mean, obviously, just, just read Sports Illustrated. You knew it was going to happen, right? <laughs> exactly. Was there a point last season when you thought this is the year, and this is our this is our year to get this done? I mean, I think it was gradual. To be honest with you, I don't think there was a single point, but um, we had such a strong start that we were firmly in first place the entire way through, and so the sentiment was all, always about like, okay, putting ourselves in a position once we get to the playoffs to really dominate to really win it all but it almost felt like we were in cruise control for the entire year which is scary now because that's a you know a benefit that most clubs don't ever feel um and so you know i hope we're so lucky this year but no there wasn't a single moment um but in in the playoffs i mean there are some moments for me where i was like oh my god like this is a really badass team you know bregman's throw to home um to get bird out at the plate you know with but a quarter inch to spare, like that is, that's one of those moments where I'm like, wow, you know? So um, I had a handful like that throughout the playoffs that left me more and more encouraged that we were actually going to do this thing. Although I felt completely deflated after the three straight losses at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> what is it like sitting up in the box, watching these playoff games, knowing that at this point your work is done and now you just have to watch and, and hope? It's kind of nice, to, to be honest. Um and it doesn't mean you're any less anxious about the game outcome and all of that, but there is a sense of satisfaction to feeling like, okay, well, now it's, it's time to watch, and let's hope we get a good outcome here, you know? So um, it takes, I think, a little bit of stress off because you don't have to worry about going out and doing, but it was nice. I mean, I get to sit with Jeff and others in the box and watch the game, and 
when they're playoff games, all the better. It's pretty pretty incredible. Very few people get to experience the thrill of being part of a World Series winning club. Clubhouse celebration, the parade, I assume those are pretty surreal events to be a part of. What's that whole experience like? Um, it's hard to explain, and I scroll through my photo albums a pathetic amount to kind of relive those moments. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. Like, the parade, um, the city had obviously gone through a lot recently, um, and the way that they showed up and rallied was incredible. That was a big part of it. It wasn't just that we won the World Series, is that we won the World Series when we won it. Um, and so to see, you know, over a million people gathered in downtown, and I was actually put on um, one of the trucks with Biggio and Bagwell, and so I got to pretend that, like, all of the, the cheering was actually for me. But, um, <laughs> for yeah, the Hall of Famers, right? That, that's pretty cool, right? You got, like, a, a guy from New York, like any other finance guy, who's now on a uh, World Series truck with Biggio and Bagwell cruising around Houston. So none of that makes sense to me. I don't know how that happened, but it's obviously awesome. And um, the clubhouse celebrations also, like, obviously those are so so much fun um and you know <laughs> there i feel like it's other than you know marrying my wife and all that it's like the pinnacle of my existence it's been so great and i hope i get to experience it again people have said that winning is great but it only increases your hunger to do it again yeah. do you find that to be true yeah definitely because um now at this point we're a couple months removed from that and you know it goes down in history forever and there are nice photos around our complex and um I get a ring, which is awesome. But now, now we got to do it again. And there are other teams out there that want the exact same thing. And you know, there's been a lot of teams that have won the World Series in the past. So there, you know, you got to take all those nice memories and balance them with the fact that um, you know we're on to a new season and a new challenge. And you know, you're only as good as what you've done lately. I know that's how Jim Crane feels. Brandon Tabman, Senior Director of Baseball Operations of the Astros. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Brandon Taubman for taking time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll sit down with Phillies President Andy McPhail. We'll discuss what it was like growing up in a baseball family, his start in the game in the minor leagues, his title teams in Minnesota, his stops in Chicago and Baltimore, and what the Eagles' Super Bowl win means for the Philadelphia Phillies. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.